we all sound good, which is the next stage. And then check, check one, two, check one, two. You sound like a fucking Texas God. That's what you sound like. Texas God. <laughs> Isn't Austin? Gotty up. Gotty up. <laughs> oh, he's leaving. Oh, you're getting up there for a second. <laughs> yeah, I'm about to leave. <laughs> you know, we take our God seriously down here, boy. <laughs> I wouldn't be making that kind of comment. Um, Stefan. That's my, new, that's my new Burning Man camp name, Texan Gods. Texan Gods. <laughs> Like Texas there's gonna be another Burning Man better. this year. Yeah. Oh well. So listen, let's 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 uh, let's make it happen, Stefan. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. You're listening to the Can't Sell This podcast with your hosts Hugh Elliott and Stefan Grambart. So, stop. Hammer time. Stefan. Yes. It's, it's another Thursday. We're it doing is. a recording, and I'm so, so, guess what I am? Excited? I'm excited. I I'm excited, it. particularly yeah. because I've got two people on with us that I, the word adore feels strong, but I really like. I really feel strongly about them. I like them both <laughs> almost equally, but I'm not going to say which one I like more. But by the so, end of this good, episode, you're going to pick your favorite? Is that what you're trying to tell me? I might. I mean, <laughs> I can't, no, it's like kids. Can't, I can't fa- have a can't favorite guest. So here we have, and this would be even funnier if this becomes a YouTube episode, a YouTube thing, but we have Dre LeBray, who's on an island right now. That's All right. right. 2001. <laughs> He's on an island <laughs> in space. And you, uh, Dre, you are a futurist. It's what I call myself today, yeah. See, that's what I... That's what I like about Dre. Dre and I met uh, easily 15 years ago, if not a little longer, when he was a Crave director. And one day he just, I just found out he called himself a future. So I was like, oh, I need to talk to Dre more. And then I'm so excited to have you on. And then down in the corner is my, my, Texas, my Texas friend, uh, Jared Ficklin, who, uh, who I, I would like to call a futurist, but I don't believe you do call yourself a futurist. I do occasionally. It's one of my uh, many titles. I don't mind using the word. I'm one of those people that will call myself a futurist. When the mood strikes. Yeah. <laughs> when it feels right. <laughs> when the ladies need, a, <laughs> need just that little bit of extra flirtation. You know what I am? A futurist. <laughs> you know what future I see? You and me together. <laughs> oh, it's, I am smooth as silk tonight, my friends. Um, uh, but Stefan, you, you do know both of these fellows as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, I know Jared through uh, FITC. Um, uh, we are both uh, frequent speakers and we have bumped into each other in multiple cities now at uh, <laughs> FITC events. And uh, I think, Dre, you reached out to me uh, when I was working at Secret Location and we went for a coffee just to talk about the future. I think it was a, that was actual our first interaction. I think we were talking about the future or, or even before that. I think I was talking to you about some process that you went through with um, with a, a VR, um, what is it, the, the Ichabod? Uh, the Sleepy Hollow Project. Yeah, Sleepy yeah, yeah. Hollow Project. I remember talking to you about that because I was really interested in your um, – 
your process for getting people in and out of the experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you can keep going, Stefan. I'm just yeah. <laughs> and that's oh, how I met uh, Ray and Oh Jay. my God. Okay. So I didn't realize that was how that was going <laughs> to go. We've had some good times at the various FITCs. Yeah. I, I'm a product you know, it, designer. So as a product designer, um, you know, we're five years ahead of the market because mm-hmm. that's how long it takes to get a product to market. And so I sometimes feel like I live in the future and then we're always exposed to these bleeding edge technologies. And then I once lived in 1867. Um, and all these things combine into like I, this feeling of, um, of always needing to look to the future. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the 1867 thing, for the for the record, that was a, sh- a show. <laughs> it was. <laughs> it wasn't like Doc Brown, where we were going. We don't just, need roads. I just got off out of a white van, and next thing I know, I was in 1867. Or so they told you. It was a toilet paper. We didn't have toilet paper in 1867. Fancy pants. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I think I need to sue PBS. <laughs> you telling what? me that wasn't real 1867? Listen, all I'm saying is, no, you know what? Sure, you bet. It was. It was totally real. <laughs> all of it was real. Um, and so, look, the, the, the first time I met uh, Jared was, was flash forward San Francisco. Jared operated a Rubens tube on... Um, on stage like with a whole by the way there's fire and there's propane under pressure here so we need to be relatively careful (laughs) (laughs) and that's when i was like oh my god and it was funny because sean who runs fitc missed your talk and i ran into him on the street and like dude you got to get jared out to fitc because he had fire on stage and honestly is there any better thing than that um and and that's history now. It's like just you you all of a sudden started speaking to FITC, and I'm like so so happy to have had the chance to see you before you became big, man, and, and like sold the, uh, out. <laughs> thank you for the recommendation. Since that moment, FITC has actually uh, played a role in my life. Yeah, I think FITC has got to have played a role in many of our lives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dre initially, I, I believe, Dre, did you not design? the can opener logo many moons ago. I didn't design the can opener logo, but I remember Sean had a group of people back in the, I guess it was, it was 10 plus one offices at King and Bathurst. And he had a group of people there trying to figure out what they could do. And he called me up for inspiration. And I said, what about a can opener? Hmm. And he thought, okay, that's good. Then the next day he sent me a bunch of can opener designs. (laughs) And the next day, And that's history. And now they don't use it anymore. So that's the end of that reference. Um, but no, so like the, whole, the whole reason that I wanted to bring you both on was I saw you both. Uh, I saw J- Jared. I saw you speak at FITC last year. And you, you just got up. I'm, there, I'm listening. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, you know what, Hugh? Is, I, I'm not interested. I'm out. I'm out of here. That's it. Didn't um, like that question. <laughs> I believe I saw you last year. No, fuck that. That's not what happened. I'm, that's the last lie you tell, sir. Um, anyways, I saw you last year, and, and and your talk was all about like trying to sort of see the good in the future, you know. And I, you know, we we we've talked about Cory Doctorow kind of always sees the dark side of it, and the two of you were really juxtaposed in my mind, you know. 
And I wonder, since we're kind of living through a relatively dark moment, how both you and, and, and Dre, who I, I know is, is very forecasty, like you, you do look for trends and you, and, you, and you create moments for people long-term thinking, for their long-term thinking, how do you guys feel about right now? So you're asking futurists about the present. Yeah, because <laughs> this, is, this is probably, this is not something that anybody would have thought happened, right? You, you weren't sitting there going, I was ready for a quarantine. I was ready for all this to shut down, right? I absolutely was not um, ready, was not on my radar. Um, uh, knew that humanity was on the edge of, uh, on the cusp of some fragility, as we usually are as we pass between our human-scaled epochs, um, you know, uh, but, but did not think that this kind of convergence of, of media and epidemiology and a, what is actually a recurring experience in humanity, a pandemic, yeah. would come together um, in the social experiment that is um, we're undergoing at this moment. Right. And uh, for me, I mean, I'll just speak really personally and then expand out from there. Um, uh, it's been very hard um, balancing the uh, um, collective call for safety against my own need for human connection. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was born a twin. Um, the practice of learning self is something that I didn't even occur to me to undertake until about five years ago. And the idea of being alone is like a, a very new thing. And I, even though I'd undergone a lot of that practice recently, um, everyone's energy was still reaching out. Right. Right. And suddenly everyone's energy has collapsed inward to not reach out. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it's almost a metaphor for like the universe and the big bang. It's like gravitational mm -hmm. forces mm -hmm. reversed all of a sudden. Yeah. I mean, we know the reasons why, but I, in terms of use, you kind of, you know, I'm starting at the feel place and I, I can go to the technological and, and the other places later in this podcast, but that's, that's where it's, it's been for me personally, it's been challenging. I'm quite thankful that it hasn't been challenging in the way that I've had to deal with people. I know having the illness or uh, succumbing to the illness. Right. Although I did lose my uh, grandfather a couple of years ago to pneumonia, mm -hmm. um, which is something that does, um, happened. It was you know, sad, but wasn't a tragedy in any sense. Right. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'll start and ground us there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I wondered, like, especially from the point of view of, of uh, Dre, if I might, like, I, I, you know, I know you had been doing a lot of consulting in terms of this is where technology is leading us. This is where society is leading us. You took those two things together and it, it could help you to forecast. Mm -hmm. This is how, you know, we're going to live. Uh, I mean, you have a very, you know, <clears throat> you, have, you have very strong opinions in, in, in terms of like, I think this is how it's going to be. 
what how how has that been for you the past the past few months of of watching what you think is sort of a, a what could be an age of reason or enlightenment all of a sudden go you know yeah i i think that uh, prior to this uh, you know the pandemic happening it's been there's been a lot of it's been predicted for a long time that there's going to be another pandemic mm-hmm. we saw uh, ebola like maybe 10 years ago which was was something that was a little bit more contained, but epidemiologists for a long time have been saying, yeah, this is going to happen again. It's inevitable. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Right. In the, you know, the strategic foresight and kind of futurist world, honestly, not a, I don't think anybody really put this on their radar. This, this blindsided a lot of people, including a lot of futurists, and a lot of futurists were left scrambling to try to understand how did this not show up in our scenarios. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are some futurists that specifically work in the virology field that have modeled this type of behavior. But even speaking for myself, I was doing work for a travel company not even a year ago looking at the future of travel. And frankly, right. this didn't, this didn't uh, end up on the list of things that uh, that uh, we ended up envisioning, yeah, not predicting, but just envisioning. But now that we are in it, I I really clued in about mid mid February. I was away for a while, uh, out of the country, and and this started happening while I was away. And I remember towards the end of February, I knew we were going for a full scale lockdown. Yeah, and. When I came back to Canada on March 2nd, I, I just started self-isolating right away, uh, made sure I had everything that I needed. Uh, I, you know, I work as a contractor, so I, uh, at home, uh, freelance, so it didn't affect me in terms of uh, working in an office uh, or otherwise. And ever since then, I've been paying really close attention to what the epidemiologists are saying, and I have a really good idea of where I think this is going to go. And we're seeing a lot of stuff around... Uh, you know the you know the, the reopening of of cities and states and provinces and so on and so forth it's that's not going to work that's a that's a big mistake yeah um, you know I, I feel like there's there's uh, the writings on the wall it's really clear what needs to happen but there is some um, there are some selfish tendencies and selfish behaviors and unempathetic attitudes that are leading towards there being a a a second spike in this current wave and be a second wave come late summer and fall. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, you know, uh, Bill Gates was probably the most on headed his thumb, the most in the technological prognosticating world. Um, his thumb on, on that there would be a pandemic in some certain time frame. But I think what, universally no one saw coming was um, and people have been flirting with it around the edges and that's what has been different I think partially about this pandemic than past pandemics other than that the characteristics of the virology are always slightly different here and there is um, it would seem in this one the combination of a worldwide social media meant that the epidemiologists were somehow algorithmically or otherwise selected as the policymakers for this round. In 1969, right. when uh, 
the Hong Kong flu went around and 100,000 Americans, uh, you know, died, the the government was still setting policy and and, and um, when N1, H1N1 went around, killed 75,000 Americans, um, uh, the government was still the policy maker. This time around, strangely enough, and this is, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking, and it's just a theory and, uh, and something, you know, amalgamated in some articles I read that I, I don't have links to, but um, that, um, you know, flatten the curve got out so far ahead of even the virus. Right. And the, ep- the epidemiology field is, is a field that is very focused on num- numbers and, and statistics and genetics to a certain degree, but the genetic side of it's fairly young. But they don't tend to study political science or sociology. And I feel like some of our scientific fields in humanity, we've, we've, we have so many amazing specialties, but we've kind of lost that almost um, Pythagorean notion that um, a scientist should be well-rounded with philosophy and, and religion and, mm-hmm. and purpose for humanity, right? <laughs> and so um, it's really interesting to see that happen, right? The lockdown was not necessarily the idea of governments other than China, but by the way, China typically reacts this way to anything. Yeah. Um, right. If there's too many, if there's uh, Muslims praying too loud, they lock down a region, right? If there's a chemical plant link, they just lock down a region, right? If someone's selling counterfeit goods for the, without paying a local bribe, they lock down the region. So, you know, China kind of did what China does, not necessarily from an epidemiology, logical standpoint, but all of a sudden the rest of the world, which has made very different choices in the past, was subject to this wave of flatten the curve from the people and to the point where they kind of had no choice. I think that's kind of like why there's so much strife about it today is um, the the feeling of choice. Well, no, no, that because, um, because of where, where the idea and the pressure to do this came from. So it came from these, it came from these algorithmic channels. So everyone kind of saw it, but through their own lens and made different points of view. Um, It's, it's fascinating too. If anything, it's shown us um, once again, the power of worldwide communication in the hands of a very few conglomerated social media. Well, we, you know, we, we're, we're in Canada and you're in the States and it's, it's interesting because we, we typically do a temperature check of what's going on in in the States and, 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 you know, watching what's happening where you can actually have people protesting against common sense. And we're like, shit, there's, there's (laughs) nothing we can do about that, you know, but then the first nice weekend we had, 10,000 people descend upon one park or 3,000, who gives a shit, enough people descend upon the park that I immediately thought, well, there's our second wave of the first, you know, second spike of the first wave is going to be this. Although there's already a discussion that the second spike will be because of Mother's Day. Um, You know, this is definitely going to be a spike. And it, and you know, when I posted about it, you know, this, this is just the most selfish thing I'd seen in a long time. Somebody defended it like, well, you know, they're lonely or whatever. And I'm like, we're all lonely, all of us, you know, but some of us are, are trying to protect family members that have no protection, you know? So it's, 
it's hard to you can't you can't force empathy on people i think is the biggest problem and i think you know a lot of times when when you are when you're and you can correct me if i'm wrong but when you when you look towards the future you try to have an empathetic eye towards the people that you want to interact with the stuff you're you're making or that you hope to create or that you're telling people your clients you have to have an empathy towards the people that you want to reach right like am i wrong there dre no <laughs> not at all you you know you're totally you're totally right there's and i, I as i mentioned I, I feel like i'm seeing a a lack of empathy in different places and it's 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 too bad that that's the way it is and i, I like your like your way of describing it as people protesting against common sense, because mm. it does feel like that. And it becomes this idea of choosing, you know, people's lives over the, the, um, uh, you know, your personal freedom. Yes. Yes. I think Americans understand the American psyche a little. I'm, de I'm desperate to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, you know, in classic podcast family fashion, I'm going to couch this in a, sorry for breaking the fourth wall, everybody, but I'm going to couch this in a, um, a disclaimer that um, people will edit out and turn this into my words. But <laughs> this is not necessarily my opinion, but to, as the American on here, um, uh, and a Texan, no less. A Texan. Um, the, this, the American psyche, there's a few things, I, I think, that color some of the reactions here. One is, and the first one, it, it maybe should be the last one, is the way our media makes money. Mm -hmm. is by drama, dramatizing and hyperbolizing anything that is happening. So what happened in the American parks was probably not too different than what happened in the Canadian parks, but it was characterized as far more aggressive with far more aggressive videos and far more aggressive edits and music and commentary around it because it's America. Second, right. this is the, the country that was founded on the phrase, give me freedom or give me death. Right. There is still a great part of the American psyche that would prefer death, um, uh, um, to any loss of liberty. Mostly someone else's death yeah. over, <laughs> over loss of liberty. Like the idea that the, the idea and the, the commentary that I hear from people that are protesting, even wearing a mask is I won't get sick. I won't get sick. And it's, it's like, but that's not the point, right? The point is not whether or not you would get sick, you know, it's whether or not you could get someone else sick. But see, this is American versus Canadian. We're talking yeah. about psyche here, right? Uh, yeah, one hundred percent. They're not. They're they're saying, um, I, "I will be free," right? And someone's saying, "But you 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 might kill someone." But and then they're saying, "But they should be free too." And um, you should be free to there's die. There's no. There's not a lot of empathy or sympathy in that. I totally recognize that. Right? Yeah. Um, it's a ordering of priorities and i don't necessarily think that way which is why i'm isolated and have an amazing mask that i i wear everywhere mm. and um have emptied out my you know the, the business here and had my employees working from home and have you know sat at home and and you know we've made 800 pieces of ppe and distribute them out to people we're, we're, you know, but but i i'm just trying to you know some of that gets gets kind of grand gets does this is kind of interesting here, here in the US. Also, we do not have um, it gets very shades of gray as well. We don't have nationalized health care here. We have a private health care system. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, that created some really complex news stories. Like here in Texas, our, our governor moved to reopen some things quite early. That was reported as the state of Texas is reopening. Right. <laughs> but the truth was, um, all he said was we were going to reopen the hospitals for elective procedures. Um, right. So, some state parks and retail for to-go pickups, right? Um and the reason he was opening the hospitals for um, elective procedures is they were facing bankruptcy. Um, right, because they're a for-profit business. It's not a... They weren't getting enough COVID traffic because of the effectiveness of the lockdown. Of the lockdown, yeah. Um, to pay the bills. And yeah. many and many nurses got uh, furloughed and laid off um, in this process and suddenly read the writing on the walls and said, Hey, you know what? Um, it's time to, we have to uh, open up to like kind of victims of your own success kind of thing. And some of that got like uh, reported, but it is it's really interesting. People are wanting to get out. And lately I've been thinking uh, a little broadly about there's a quality of life and a quality of um, death issue to be addressed at this point of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, which means, do we know enough now to start improving people's quality of death? And we are not all invincible. We will all die one day. And I think we need to lessen the number of occurrences of people that are having to die alone, isolated, and speaking to their loved ones over iPhones. And yeah. so science and, and sociology and, and, and the culture and, and the communities that we're in need, need to start working on that problem pretty rapidly because it's confusing people and mm -hmm. I, and the confused people are lashing out with and as they lash out like nothing's nothing's more dangerous than a riot right right mm -hmm. i guess it depends well what i love about what i love about that line of thinking um is that it it plays so much into what makes a good futurist is in, in that you are looking at uh, not just the, the present situation, but also, you know, where the present situation could lead to uh, with an eye on uh, people other than yourself. Because I find that what happens very often is that we look at the future and we think of, of ourselves. So for instance, uh, some of the conversations that I've had around the lockdown are, well, I mean, just work from home. How hard can it be? And I'm like, well, yeah, sure. If, if you work in a digital field where you can sit at a computer and type all day. But, but what about, you know, like all the people who work in the service industry, right? And I mean, that, that's, that's very basic, but, um, but I think that it's sometimes very difficult for people to put themselves into someone else's shoes and see the impact of their situation on someone else. Uh, and to be an effective futurist to, to understand where things are going, you really have to understand where people are taking it and not just yourself, but everyone. Yeah. Bias is a big thing. Um, a lot of people do just kind of talk about what they know. We live, we live in a, in a ditch and we've got these two blind spots on either side. And uh, I, you know, I think it's great if you're privileged and, and uh, fortunate enough to be able to work from home then that's great. But there are a lot of people who simply can't do that. I'm from a small town. I couldn't even imagine the majority of the population even having 
the opportunity to do that when you you come from a mining town. You can't, yep. you can't dig holes. You can't dig for gold in your bedroom, right? Yeah, I, I mean, we you look at you look at the people getting the most uh, instances of illness, and they're the people who are having to take transit down to central areas to service the people that can work from home and show up and go, give me my coffee or give, you know, and you're like, wow, you just, you just need to recognize what's going on here. Like, you know, when you look at the instances of in Toronto, especially a heat map of where coronavirus is hitting the hardest, it's all just, it's all outside the central core Mm -hmm. where people have to take transit in. Like they can't work from home. You know, they, they have to do their job. They're considered essential. So they are getting the most affected by this thing. And, and you know, I've been capable and very fortunate to have been able to work from home this entire time. Like we locked down first week of March, second week of March, something like that. And I've, I've never been more grateful of this situation. I mean, we went from like, I am an installation builder. Like I build, you know, interactions yeah. and they went, well, we're going digital. And I was like, you know, like I, I, I've spent the past like two and whatever months, like essentially recreating interactions that are touch free in every regard, you know, like how do you still get what the, the satisfaction you would get from like grabbing an object or pushing a button or, you know, how do you get that same satisfaction? I've been doing a lot of thinking towards that for the long term because no one's going to want to touch the stuff that we, that I've we, been thinking about that for my next installations too, right? My hobbies, interactive art yep. and it all that takes place in event, you know, um, from birthday parties to burning man. And, um, <laughs> I'm like, what's my next installation going to be? This is how I, ex- you know, express myself. I Porta potties are retired. My that. friend, Porta potties are retired. Tell yeah, you no what. Wants, yeah. Right. That's a lot uh, of antiseptic you're going to have to bring with you next time. Yeah, so these interactive art, it's got to go digital for a, for a period of time. Um, and I think my next piece is going to be an Ori. It's going to be like one of those planetary Ori's. And okay. you have to have a webcam. And all the planets are going to be like 12 feet apart so that you could actually stand under them distanced. And they're going to be web controlled, um, individually web controlled. Right. You could, right? so that humanity can get this sense that they're in control again (laughs) (laughs) of like the entire solar system. Cause I would like to embiggen people's thinking. Um, It's just a kind of a thing that I've been on lately is that, um, uh, that we falsely think of ourselves as earthlings um, when in fact we are solarians Mm -hmm. and we're trying to solve too many of our problems in the context of earth. Um, without increasing that context. And I, I, the context is an important part of future. And Stephen, Stephen, you were talking about that earlier in terms of um, uh, thinking about others. Mm-hmm. It's also thinking about systems and thinking about interplays holistically, right? Uh, and I think it's funny when, you, uh, uh, when I combine that to what you were just talking about with who is getting sick where. Yeah. And what I said earlier about epidemiologists being the policymakers because social media algorithmically anointed them some, like what kind of city does an epidemiologist design? Right. Today's epidemiologist, right? They design LA, right? Something where everyone transits from a 
an isolated mm -hmm. cube in an isolated box to another isolated cube and back, right? And it's really wide. It's really spread out. It can't be vertical and it doesn't have mass transit, right? So this mm -hmm. begs the question, do we really want epidemiologists setting public policy or do they need help? Yeah, I mean, I, this the scenario of of what has happened has and let me I, I put the word in big in uh, the d definition in the chat <laughs> because I was just so happy you said it I was like oh my god I just that makes me so happy that you used the word Did in big in oh you use Webster I you sure I wasn't using the urban dictionaries <laughs> I wouldn't think so to make bigger or more expansive I think that would yes, be what yes. you're talking about yeah but. You know, when you when you look at the the effect that the virus had on New York City in particular, that that is a very vertically aligned city, and 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 just like going from one apartment downstairs can be traumatic for people now. You know, like you live in Austin. Austin, do you happen to live in like a fairly large area within Austin, or is Austin a fairly? I've never been to Austin. That would be my. Austin's the fourteenth largest city in the U.S. right now. It's okay. about 2.2 million people in its greater metropolitan area. Mm -hmm. We, um, Austin, the city itself, which is uh, just a line because it's, you know, it's a metropolitan area now. Right. Um, you know, it's now larger than San Francisco, the city itself. Um, it's, it's a big area. It's not, it's not dense though, except right. for the very That's core what I mean. of downtown. It's not dense. I like, live Toronto's exceptionally minutes. dense. Yeah, I live 20 minutes outside of town on seven acres. Um, okay. I, you know, um, uh, we're we're currently an LA Houston style city. We have very little mass transit, right? And right. Uh, and a whole bunch of people who work in the digital industries or young people, we're barely feeling this other than the lockdown. In terms of like how hard people are feeling it in other places of the world, like my friends back in New Mexico, or particularly those in the Four Corners area are just getting hammered, both um, spiritually, economically, and with health mm -hmm. effects. You know, it's it's just unevenly distributed. Yeah. Um, Dre, can I ask you, uh, as, a, as a consultant that, that does forecasting stuff, do you, has your consultancy changed with how you interact with your clients in terms of like what you're telling them? Or like, has your research methods changed in terms of like, well, listen, we're going to have to think very differently or are you still sort of, are you along the same lines of what you used to do? And I, I'm along the same lines of what I used to do. And I think that what I'm doing is always kind of evolving. This has just added a new, a new aspect of, of uh, being prepared for uncertainty. There are just mm -hmm. so many uncertainties that are out there right now. There's also, uh, a bit of a focus on this post COVID world that we're living in, because this is not a, a lot of people talk about going back to normal. And I think what people miss is that, that that's gone. There's no more normal. Also, we don't want to go back. That was normal was not good, not a good place. It got us to where we're, we're at. So there's a, you know, I hate the term new normal, but there is a, something different. There's a new abnormal that's going to happen. There's going to be a new way of doing things. So I'm working with clients right now to help them navigate how is this going to, how is this going to work for them in, yeah. in the future when, you know, physical distancing becomes more commonplace. We don't know what variations on this strain of virus are going to be. Is this going to be this a reoccurring thing that happens every every season, some 
large devastating thing. Who knows? We don't know that stuff, but we do know that masks are here to stay. Physical distancing is going to be more of a thing. And it's also ushered in. It's fast forwarded us into the future where, you know, it's become the fulcrum by which, you know, distributed workforce or work from home is going to happen where a lot of companies are going to start uh, delivering and picking up. Uh, so those are the discussions we're having right now with current clients. Mm -hmm. But as we start to level out, I think we'll, we'll continue to think about uh, all the other things that we need to think about for the future, more specifically, and maybe more importantly, just climate change in general. Mm. Yeah, I feel like right now is the time where, where futurism is, is really required. You know, everybody wants to know what is this going to look like in six months? What is this <laughs> going to look like in a year, two years, five years out? Um, and I, I mean, it's, we already know that, that things are going to be drastically changed. I mean, I'm, I'm reading articles every week about all the restaurants in Toronto that have closed and are not going to be reopening because it's just these small businesses could not stay afloat. And um, a lot of people sort of feel that that is where the issues are. But um, I don't, do you guys know or have heard about this whole like ongoing uh, theory that at some point Apple would buy Disney? <laughs> have you heard about no. this? <laughs> I mean, they're rich enough so they can buy anybody they want. Well, yeah. And apparently there's, there's this theory about Apple having a, f a fund – of cash that is sitting there ready for them to make a, a major investment. And um, having, having gone through a themed entertainment uh, a course uh, for my master's, I got really interested and really uh, uh, sort of like deeply ingrained into the theme entertainment and specifically universal and Disney in Orlando, a landscape. And um, that is a beautiful sunset, Jared. <laughs> doesn't matter how bad a day is right uh, yeah <laughs> um but but yeah with with the disney question the idea is that um uh, apple like right now the thing that has a lot of currency in entertainment is not just digital content but digital backlog because it's great if netflix wants to make their own shows but nobody's producing anything right now so unless it's something that you've already produced and have are ready to ship it's it has less value so for Apple to be able, if Apple were able to buy Disney and because Disney has so much of its, its um, income tied into those parks, which are now closed and furloughed, mm. um, you know, people have brought this theory up again. Maybe this is the time and why would Disney want to and why wouldn't they want to? So I think it's not just small shops or medium-sized businesses, it's some of the major players in, in like the global landscape that are having problems or, or ha are dealing with challenges now due to COVID and due to the, the sort of new measures we have to put in place right. to survive. Well, yeah, so um, people so, are realigning their relationship with consumption, which is interesting. And maybe now's the time where we, we start getting into some predictions. Right. Yeah. yeah. Sure. <laughs> I like I said. I, I don't have any expectations. I just I knew that I would be really interested in having a conversation with you two and, and, and uh, Stefan as well. Obviously, who who has spent the past, you know, six to eight months 
doing nothing but research. So like I, yeah. I'm the, I'm the one of the four of us. It's kind of the, the dumbest. So I, I'm just super excited <laughs> to, to have this opportunity. If you have predictions, I am, I'm, I'm all listening. I'm oh, shooting from it. the hips, but that, um, well, it's very Texan of you. Yes, we tend to hit our mark. No, uh, <laughs> uh, one ranger, one riot, right? Um, uh, or one riot, one ranger. So they say. It. Uh, well, anyways, you're gonna have to uh, get the saying right before you. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> I just lost my driver's license. Ah, oh, that test. <laughs> no. Um, uh, I think there's some a couple thoughts I would like to throw out just to to move to the future because like we we we've talked a lot about what's going on now and um but um what and and uh uh, trey you started catalyzing like what could change next like what you're preparing compliance for what might the environment uh, um, or society culture look like as a result of this um I like to sometimes extrapolate some very tactical things. And um, one is, as humanity, we've been operating um, with the beliefs that biological evolution is the most superior form of evolution, even though for the last 20,000 years or so, we have not been subject to biological evolution. We've really um, started a course of what you could call technological um, evolution, especially in the last few years. And um, I think our approach to pandemics and disease vectors are caught somewhere in the middle. And along with that is they're caught up with with a certain kinds of policies that come from forms of authority that are reaching the end of their lifespan as well. And, um, okay, a bunch of philosophical law, uh, talk. What does that mean in terms of brass tacks? It means that we think the way to attack a pandemic is with a vaccine that is tested through natural means via ethics that were set 150, uh, 100 years ago or so, right? Um, so we should, and that's our only approach to preventing these things. Well, I actually think we will change as humanity and start looking at this a little more proactively. Um, I think you're going to start to see a proliferation of actual virus detection um, systems, much like we do weather detection or smog detection or tsunami detection or earthquake detection. It is not out of the bounds that we could put out, out a series of stations that can sample the air or even surfaces and identify genetic code that aligns with things like COVID or that could be potential pandemics. In other words, the first groupings of humans that go down will no longer be the signal that tells us something is coming. The second thing I think will change is the notion that we could um, uh, quickly produce artificial antibodies or more quickly deploy vaccines will change, not just through modeling, but also I think changes in in ethics. This has to do with that quality of life, quality of death equation talked about earlier, right? Right now, um, we're facing this particular challenge. The lockdown has been so successful that we're having trouble with vaccine trials. Because the way we do vaccine trials is, is very ethical, and it needs to be ethical, but we give people the vaccine who, once we've proven it on animals to like not kill mammals, and the people who will volunteer for potential long-term um, complications, 
and then, but we won't inoculate them. We put them out in society and we study the numbers to see if they uh, get the disease or not. But when you have a declining turn due, uh, curve such that's declining so steeply due to um, social isolation protocols, it gets rid of your statistical certainty. And so there's act, right? You don't know if they didn't get it because it wasn't as catchable or if the virus prevented them from getting it. And so you have to extend the trial for many, many years, wait for a second wave, get more and more people inoculated. This, can, this is when they say it could take seven, eight, nine years to, to you know, see if a vaccine works. Right. There is now a clamoring of people that says, why don't we take everything we know about genetics, know about the disposition of profiles of risk from studying things like the USS Roosevelt and other um, close quarter outbreaks on um, large populations. And then people who are willing to volunteer in the name of science and inoculate. I think we might see a shift in ethics around how we handle the science of epidemiology here um, in that. Also, I think there's a group of people that will work on modeling this stuff virtually and using the great computational powers we have now to determine. And some groups have already kind of, that was their starting approach was to go into the lab, look at vaccines that were developed for um, the swine flu, which is a, was a similar genetic code to this, modify them by just a little bit, start producing artificial antibodies, and say these antibodies worked in the, uh, for the last COVID-type virus. They'll probably work for this one. But they're like stuck in a bureaucratic system of like, okay, now we need to prove that biologically rather than technologically. Mm-hmm. I, I think that will change. So there's some interesting things I think we could see um, uh, coming in that area there's probably two other areas i could go on but i want to save it and give you guys time to comment <laughs> you know, on on that brain dump i'm i'm a uh, I'm, I'm a techno optimist and I, I i love technology and i think there's a lot of good stuff uh that it's going to do for us in the future and i agree with you um jared that that uh we have this um, massive computational power that could help model and 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 likely better uh, predict what could potentially happen but I just go back and think of like that old story of you know how the American or NASA invented the uh, you know the uh, zero gravity pen they spent millions of dollars figuring out this little vacuum tube in the pen and to do something the Russians just Use a pencil. pencil. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and I, I think that. that there are there there's some there's some good things that the technology can do, and it, it'll take tremendous effort and and, and strides and, and money to get there. When there are some very basic things that we can do now in terms of addressing inequality, um, uh, education, closing down wet markets, it just do that, and you reduce the risk of pandemics. Forever, we never need to do any computational mod- modeling. We can just stop it in its tracks. So I feel like there are uh, two sides to this coin, but we can't ignore the fact that there's a just very, very basic shit that we're not doing that we should be doing. Sure, sure. Yeah, and I mean, um, the society angle and from how we are going to potentially shift the way we work, the way we play, and the things that we do um, – and not necessarily from either a tech standpoint or from a a prevention or detection standpoint, but even things like um, people will be working more from home. I think that there's a group of people who, who probably uh, found some kind of benefit in working from home, being with their families, found a better work life balance. Um, But I think if there's one thing that 
I keep thinking back on it's um, it's a, a video game trailer from 2013 uh, for Tom Clancy's The Division, which is a, a like an action shooter, but it's centered around this virus. Now in the game, it's a it's a it's like a terrorist thing, but they released a trailer uh, that just just sort of t- starts talking about how fragile our system is and how when when one brick is removed the whole thing comes crumbling down and i th- i think that you know post sars epidemi- epidemiologists said like this is a thing that will happen again like sars never went away like it's it's out of the news cycle but there are outbreaks every year like of avian flu but they happen on chicken farms and they happen they it, it doesn't get to the point of of the the outbreak that we had like here in toronto but there were a lot of recommendations that were made but that just weren't followed because they were not they were cost prohibitive they were just too 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 unwieldy to implement and people didn't see a need well i think people are seeing that need now you know like the the um vulnerabilities have been exposed and so now it's like, okay, well, what can we do in the future to prevent this? But what can we also do in the next six months to like come out of this and make sure that we understand that, you know, this is not, it's not like a, like you said, Dre, it's not going back to normal. We will have to contend with COVID as a reality moving forward. And, and how dramatic that is depends on how we react. I think to what it's going to do to us is, uh, change us from this notion of being a resilient society to an anti-fragile society. And I think this is this new, this That's new, really yeah. this new notion. And this is a, a, like that. A, a concept that, that that's, that's going around right now, but it, it, the, yeah, the idea that being anti-fragile means that um, you, you know, that uh, there will be some unknowns and you know that there are going to be some uh, issues that are going to arise and it's being prepared to take the hit and, and, and keep going. I don't know that social structures are poised to change as much as a lot of people want them to. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, um, um, There's a lot of people hoping for a revolution. It's not going to come. Yeah. Things will not go back to normal. Maybe things will become more anti-fragile, but this is not the starting or the seeding of a revolution. I'm a little concerned um, what will happen when those people don't get their revolution, um, if they will be angry enough to manufacture one that has nothing to do with viruses or, or such. But hopefully that's not the case. Revolutions are far more dangerous to humanity than any of the uh, uh, pandemics we've known in our history, even the worst of them. But, um, uh, uh, and I think we've grown past that anyways. I think we have new ways to have revolutions that don't have to be violent, uh, personally, a frictionless revolution. Um, But um, the reason I say that is because the things that really affect change in humanity are um, large fictions that they believe in. And when they not real things that happen, um, and when they believe in these large fictions, that's when sea changes um, begin to happen. And you know we're on the, you know we have a, we're on the, this golden age has been on the tail end of a of a number of fictions that are about two thousand years old now and are kind of reaching 
they're, you know, to use a rocketry metaphor, they, they've reached the, the, the amount of lift they can provide the weight mm-hmm. of society. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always toyed with this, writing this book that I call Funeralisms, and it, chapter by chapter is a eulogy of some ism that humanity has grown, outgrown capitalism, socialism, you know, certain religions, uh, uh, <laughs> earthism, you know, uh, 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 you know, various things like that. Uh, just to try and lead people to a, a conclusion that it's time to, to think of something new, a new, it's time to adopt a purpose, a new purpose for humanity. It won't be different, so different from the old ones, uh, but one that, uh, that could, um, uh, you know, preserve the species, uh, give a sense of, of um, enough sense of a purpose to propagate more love and happiness uh, through mm-hmm. people. Uh, you know, yeah, and- sorry, I, I've been using the word usism because you hear a lot of the, you know, socialism, capitalism, thisism, thatism, uh, and, and I, I feel like if there's just just an usism, and people just believe in in just the, the 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 unity of of this, if we could just be patriotic about the the well the, the the earth to start with until we start um becoming proper solarians out in into the solar system but like if we could just uh, get behind that uh you know but short of some alien global intervention i don't know what uh, what's going to get us there that's a good start of a, of a fiction is some sort of alien message delivered um, through tablets that um, Stephen Hawking's wrote and buried somewhere in my backyard uh, that I recently discovered and read. Um, I translated them with the help of a Google Translate algorithm that was um, uh, hidden deeply and, re, re, and uh, revealed to me by uh, a, uh, Steve Jobs, who appeared to me in a dream. Uh, I then was told uh, uh, by uh, um, Steve Ballmer, the other Steve, to uh, rebury the, the, these, this secret um, uh, uh, tablet that uh, Stephen Hawking had translated from the aliens. And it revealed to me uh, this fact that we are not earthlings, we are solarians, and our purpose in the universe is to provide as much love and intellect to the universe as possible. And not merely for our own pleasure, but because the universe demands it. Because it turns out love and intellect are actually physical forces. They're small forces that have great reach, like super strings and super string theory, and that's the kind of dimensional level that they interplay as a force. And then we're now beginning to notice that there are several galaxies, the ones that are curiously moving in the wrong directions that led to thoughts of dark matter or anti-gravity um, that actually may have these kind of forces phylotically connecting them. And what they're actually doing is presenting, preventing the universe from collapsing in and back in upon itself and just continuing the big boom cycle. And uh, so the universe values love and intellect to the point of self-preservation. Therefore it seeds intelligent life in certain places in, 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 in the interstellar. Uh, and um, what wants them to propagate. Um, we've gone through the biologic evolutionary phase, it lets us through the awareness of our planetary. So what's our next purpose? Our next purpose, if you're going to create as much love and intellect for the universe as possible, well, you just need to create as much, you need to create as many humans that each one individually is contributing as much love and intellect to the universe as possible. Well, the earth has a limit of how many human beings is somewhere around where we're at now. But the solar system could probably support 7 trillion humans, but we must remain humans. Therefore, there's a few forces we have to look to avoid as we head out to the stars. And there's one, one thing that we have to preserve 
and that's our uh, the true Gaia, Earth as Mother. Mm-hmm. Because if we go to Mars and we live there for seven generations, we'll speciate. And if we go to the Kuiper Belt and we live there for seven generations, isolated, we'll speciate. And if you have three species in any kind of locus of the solar system level, you're going to go to war and you're going to reduce the amount of love and intellect in, in uh, the universe. So we have to somehow spread out to the solar system as family humanity. And family humanity consists of the agrarian healers, which dominate the earth today, the explorers and the hunter-gatherers who are nearly going extinct at this point. We need to put to work creating settlements on Mars and hunting the asteroid belts for all the lithium and molybdenum and um, rare earth metals we need to electrify rather than mining the earth for it. See, your point of view changes completely when you begin thinking about a solarian and not an earthling because you don't have these earth problems of being resource constrained and you don't have to look to the earth to provide all resources. You look to the earth as the ecological, biodiverse mother of humanity, which she has to be. Turns out every seven years, human and humans probably have to visit earth. We probably need to reproduce here. So the um, agrarian healers have this new task and humanity has this new task of preparing earth to be the gestation and biodiversity engine for seven trillion humans. To do that, we're gonna have to become eco-poets. We're gonna have to garden the earth. We're gonna have to take over uh, uh, and make sure that has the kind of biodiversity to fight the forces, the the, these uh, remaining echoes of biological evolution, right? And then um, uh, what do we get if we accomplish this, right? Well, mm-hmm. The, the, the tablet said that at that point, um, the aliens will come back and give us the gift of interstellar travel, um, which if you think this idea of like so much love and intellect in the universe is great, once you have interstellar travel and meet all these other great things, it's, suppo- it's just, it's just, trust me, it's fantastic. <laughs> so our choices are either to stay on Earth, think as Earthlings, and burn up in a fiery global uh, warming climate change, or decide that our purpose is to create as much love and intellect for the universe possible, become solarians and spread out in the solar, the solar system and take on this brand new mantle of interstellar travel. But when you have a, when you have a, 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 a high number of people that are actively against love and intellect, they spend a lot of time and they've spent generations fighting against it and making sure that, it's all about the climb for themselves versus, you know, the climb of for all. Because they don't um, know their new purpose. We need to convert them. Well, you know, the, the triptych of the three Steves may not be. The, 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 <laughs> I know the, it's not the best starter. Maybe we can come up with something else. The, <laughs> all the really good fictions are the kind of fictions that you go like. You started. It was yeah, funny I don't, because I'm you spoke. Okay. I can believe that. You, 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 you spoke about it, you know. It's interesting because you t- you talked about speciation and and I've linked to the, the the expanse novels and how, you know, the idea that that you know belters are belters and 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 Martians are Martians and Earthlings are Earthlings, but they're all human. They all recognize themselves as human beings, but they have like vastly different goals. Um, and that's and the second you're like, well, we'll just go ahead and take all the shit from where we want it. I mean, like, but someone will be in control of that, which is how we end up where we are now, where we could have the world's first trillionaire uh, at the expense of the health of all of his employees. <laughs> you know? It's not, uh, yeah, it's not a solution. It's a fiction to, to uh, catalyze um, progress. Uh, one would and, hope. 
Yeah, that well, yeah, that's it. Uh, it would be a bad fiction if it if it didn't. Um, but it's like a different because right now, like factually and truthfully, we're talking about escaping Earth and going out of the solar system to escape Earth, and that engenders this idea that Earth is not valuable, that we shouldn't handle climate change, that mm. we should just take as many of our resources as possible in order to get to Mars. And I don't like that. I don't believe that. I actually right. am quite disgusted with the electrification movement right now because we're we're like vacuuming the North Sea floor from Molly Begdom. And you know, in certain degrees, ecology is more important than environmental uh, than the environment. Uh, at, at some level, right? Uh, there's currently a big fight over Al Antelope Valley over lithium. I'm like, we already did this with the fossil fuels. Why are we doing this again with the rare earths? And we could just wait 50 goddamn years and go rope in an asteroid and electrify then. We can survive burning fossil fuels for 50 more years or build a couple nuclear planet power plants to cross the gap. What we need, though, is a longer-term plan, Right? And not and being a little less reactionary. <laughs> if we electrify on on Earth's um, uh, uh, resources, it could be it could potentially be a massive ecological disaster. When you look to see the ecologies and the biodiversity that will have to be displaced in order to get the minerals up to the surface, mm. and so can we make a plan? And so, like, but when you when you talk in terms of reality, people are, people will counter it with other realities. And we're not even creatures who understand reality. We evolved to who we are because of fictions, and our brains work on fictions. And so, I'm just clutching at straws to like, like, what would a fiction be? And the Solarian myth is my pop is my pop fiction, and that's what I just told you. I told you the Solarian myth, uh, just playing with this idea of what do we need to believe. And the heart of it is just that the purpose of humanity is to create as much love and intellect for the universe possible. Mm -hmm. If you can start there, um, there's a lot of good places you could go. You know, we, I see the Dre is smiling. I, I'm sorry for dominating <laughs> I, 20 minutes. <laughs> no, no, not at all, dude. I could hear, I, I, one, I love the Solarium. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think, I think it's an awesome, fantastic, fantastic. I'm glad this is a podcast so I can go back and listen to that later. But what that really gets me thinking about in, in terms of some of the futurism uh, I do with the strategic foresight specifically, it's, it's you craft stories of the future. And this is why I love science fiction as being one of the things that I love about doing futurism is that I don't subscribe to all of the you know, kind of classical, uh, you know, futurist type of things. But, but science fiction to me is like data from the future. It's stuff that we can learn that we can pull from things, uh, pull from these stories. And, and Jared, your, your story is great because it's a perfect example of here's this, here's this uh, smart vision and this way of positioning how we should really be thinking about ourselves and a fiction like that, a tale like that can influence a lot of people. Have you ever read uh, The Toynbee Convector by Ray Bradbury? No, I haven't. Uh, um. so, so, yeah, it's spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, uh, there's, there's a, there's a uh, time traveler uh, who who um, come, he builds a time machine and he comes back from the future and, and he, he shows people what the future looks like in this, this amazing uh, a beautiful uh, utopian uh, ideal, and and everybody gets behind this this notion. It's like, wow, we we need to we need to keep working to get to this this beautiful future that he showed us. And you know, when 
there is no time machine. He just made it all up. Uh, right. <laughs> and the idea is that the fiction and the fiction is all that it took to change the, the society's mind was just to tell this story that everyone could look up to. And this is when I, when I hear you saying that, Jared, your um, Solarian myth is that it, it feels like that. You could come back and say that you've been there and say that you've seen this and get people really excited about this. And I want my children and my children's children to experience this and, and to become true Stellarians. I think it's great. Um, uh, but you got to fix the three Steve's. Yeah, thing. yeah. No, That's... no. I make, up a, I, I make up a different one in each situation and just see how they land. Uh, three Steve's, the, the three Steve's, you know, that's a terrible one. Uh, yeah, that, you know, um, mm-hmm. and, um, I haven't found the right one yet. So I think I'm just going to start dispatching of them and just go right into the myth and let someone else come up with that part. Yeah. Um, but, you know, from there, you know, you can write a lot of scripture ba- on, the basis, on the basic tenets, right? And I didn't go into some of the details. And you should throw um, uh, Sapiens up there, too. I know it's a, it's a very poppy book right now, but it's an amazing book. And it's a really great summarization yeah. of a lot of science and philosophy together. And I want to, you know, when I, I drew from Sapiens and the Kim Stanley Robinson, which I put a link up there already, his Mars trilogy does, uh, does an amazing examination of, of um, similar to the expanse, but he, but with 600 more pages and, um, and uh, you know, in a little less, you know, a lot, a little less chase scenes, right. He's right. a lot more, he's a lot more world building than, and, and I love the expanse, you know, like read all eight in like a, a month, I think, but um, right. But, um, uh, you know, just kind of pulling it together and just seeing, you know. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I read a, a, a book. Oh, 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 shoot. I read a book a, a while back. That was, I think it was just called Earth by an author named David Brin. And do you remember uh, that book? So it, it absolutely yeah, massive book. And it about. had a whole Gaia theory thing as well in it. And um, mm-hmm. uh, what I found really interesting was how he predicted the um, – surveillance state so basically Mm. old people wearing glasses that have cameras watching young people keeping them in line by like just telling them that they're you know i'm looking at you and how kids get really upset and and it's and it's this whole there there are multiple storylines that ran through it eventually the whole guy theory came out but um I, I still remember, you know, reading that book and, and like, he's getting all hollow lens <laughs> on us here. But, but that was the thing is like the, the way he described it was a hollow lens. Do you remember that Dre? Like um, the first time I saw hollow lens, I was like, wow, it reminds me of that book earth, you yeah. know? Um, and I mean, it, I remember telling someone about it and they're like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I'm like, no, but really like if you have access to the, like this is before <laughs> cell phones were prevalent before, you know, bandwidth was a thing before you could like just pop open a phone and like take video and send it up and TikTok and yada, yada, yada. Like people just went, what do you mean? There's no way you'll be able to show video at the same time as you take it and like report right. to somebody, you know what I mean? There was no active reporting sort of thing. I just couldn't, you know, in my mind, I was like, this is going to happen. You know, this is going to happen. You know, like I was so, I was so down with it, but yeah, like, I don't know. Like that, that to me was my first, it felt like my first instance of futurism. Like it was my first instance of somebody saying like, you get over this whole, the, the Gaia stuff 
that he talks about because it's just so out there. But like all the other things about it, I was just like, this is, he's looking at the future. You know what I mean? Not like Mm -hmm. a, not like a silly way of doing it, but like logistically, how would we be dealing with military? How would we be dealing with corporations? How would we be dealing with, you know, um, poachers? Like, like, Oh, look at all the, the ivory we found, you know, like just, uh, yeah. This, there was so much stuff about it. I do. I, I recommend it. I read it again. I, I, it's one of the few books that's traveled with me. One, because mm-hmm. it's really big and it holds stuff down that I think are, might fly away in the wind. But also because I, I have read it a number of times. But I am, I'm, I'm, yep. I'm excited yep. to have all these other books in this chat because I, I have been looking for some more stuff that's, um, that's obviously not something I've read. So, I'm, yeah, I'm stoked about all this. Yeah, there's a science fiction author, Frederick Pohl, that says uh, good science fiction uh, doesn't just predict the automobile, but predicts the mm. traffic jam. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know, futurism comes. And I think, oh, go ahead, Drew. Oh, no, I was just going to say, yeah, the, the thing with, with, with futurism is that, and I hate the term futurism. It's, it's, I, I you only use the term futurist for myself because it's the only thing that kind of explains what I'm, uh, what I'm doing, but the 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 idea that um, the future can be predicted is preposterous. Like you can't predict the future, and I never use the word predict, but I do believe like envisioning the future is really important. Uh, and you can imagine the future, and and a lot of times the future is imagined, and we see it a lot in in science fiction, and we see this interplay between science fiction uh, writers and technologists, where a technologist will be inspired by. Um, by science fiction, like how the Motorola uh, uh, StarTac phone was inspired by Star Trek. And then you have the reverse where science fiction is inspired by advances in the technology. I believe the the exoskeleton and alien was inspired by like military technology. So this interplay has been happening for a long time. I think what futurism does is it expands it. It takes it out of that, that cycle and it turns it into uh, where we can talk about the future in uh, larger uh, non-technical ways and socioeconomic ways and, 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 and explore it to, to all its varying depths. But again, it's, you know, I love the technology. I love my gadgets. I love thinking about where it goes and I know that technology is going to happen so quickly but at the same time, it's it's it all. What we're, to what end? Well, to, to to us, it's like we are the end result. Ultimately, it needs to affect us somehow. Yeah, yeah. I believe in that too. Go ahead, Stephen. Sorry. No, I just yeah. that connection to to science fiction. Like I always think about how there are some authors who prefer the term speculative fiction, and I think that that's something we don't we don't predict the future, but we speculate on it. And mm-hmm. um, to me. Um, I'm the same. I think futurist is probably not the best term, but it's what we've got. And um, from a, a tech standpoint, and I'm I'm going to speak specifically about uh, virtual reality and augmented reality right now. Um, but I I much prefer futurist over evangelist. And mm-hmm. um, like there are a lot. I think that's that one's yeah, already but taken. I mean, there are so many tech evangelists or VR evangelists. And the thing in my mind that separates the two is that an evangelist looks forward to the future and says, it's going to be great. And this is, I believe in this technology and this is all the wonderful things it's going to do. And this is how it will succeed. 
and all the people who at the you know the this latest advent of of um of vr um we're pointing, you know, three years. In three years, everyone's going to have a VR set in their home. We're going to have VR TV shows and uh, video games are going to be all VR. And it's all, it's all VR. 2016 is the year. 2017 is the year. And it's still not here. And as futurists, like when I saw it, I said, well, wait a minute. We can't just say it's going to be here in three years. That, like, that's ridiculous. If we look back at television, you know, when RCA made their first investment in Philo Farnsworth's uh, invention, you know, they said in three years and three years, there will be a TV in every home across America. But it wasn't until the 1939 um, World's Fair that they actually had their first broadcast. And it was to less than 500 sets within like a, a, a very tiny radius of, 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 of New York. So these things take time and, and we, need to, we need to look back at the past, at least for technology. We need to look at, and probably for other things as well, but we need to look at how things have played out before and then speculate on how they will play out on the new technology or on the new situation that we find ourselves in. So we can make these informed guesses, but um, like, I think j to just evangelize something and say that this is the one way forward is just so dangerous because you're locking yourself into a pass path without, well, it's like the, the saying, you know, those who don't remember the past are doomed to repeat it. So. You know, I, I think, it, okay, in, in the futures world, there's a distinction between forecasting mm -hmm. and foresight. Uh, and it sounds like the evangelists are more in the, the world of forecasting. Forecasting meaning that you're taking incremental steps forward. You're imagining what tomorrow will look like, and then you imagine, you build on that, and you keep on building on it incrementally. Foresight is more about imagining a an outcome or imagining multiple outcomes, ultimately trying to figure out or tease out uh, the favorable outcome, knowing that you have to explore non-favorable outcomes in order to get there. And then from there, back cast your way to the present. You know, if we want to get there, what's what needs to happen right before this happens, then you work your way backward. I believe NASA did this with the Apollo uh, moon landing originally when Kennedy announced it in 1961. Everybody was flabbergasted the you know, NASA was, I, how are we going to do this? Uh, and this is supposed to happen by the end of the decade. And the way that they did this is that they held a parade and it was a ticker tape parade. And it was, it was in like 1961 and it just um, uh, created the illusion that the astronauts had come home and well, in order for them to arrive safely to have this parade, what needs to happen? And then they worked backwards from the future until they figured out the plan on how, to make this work. And I believe uh, the orbital trajectory was devised out of this thing, but NASA is, is famous for having done some, some epic back, back casting. And I think there's a difference between uh, forecasting and foresight. And that's why I don't like the idea of predicting the future and looking into the future. I prefer to just imagine what do you want it to be and then just make it happen. Work towards making that thing happen because we all have the power to do that. Elon Musk one day decided he wanted to put people on Mars. Guess what's happening now? Because he's doing it. Yeah, that's exactly the line I was about to go, go down. Is that, uh, you know, futurism comes in a couple of flavors. And one is that we extrapolate today. You know, Sid Mead was, um, you know, the very famous painter, right? And uh, he always said, I, you know, he, the way he predicted the future, because he, did some pretty accurate stuff. He's like, I don't predict the future. I just paint today, tomorrow. And um, 
right? And he always did this trick, this visual trick where he um, went down one line of, of what you were calling um, uh, forecasting, right? Extrapolating it down. But then he always set it into a very familiar space. He's like, because humanity advances in fits and starts, right? Um, we have the television pervasively we walk around with in our hands we have the watches we can talk to but we don't have the flying cars right but the flying cars are coming online next right and they're going on but we don't we're not going to have the you know the uh, artificial uh, assistance and avatars and so we always kind of landed that that's a good trick for designers to use when they're trying to like render the future and then those extrapolations come in two flavors right dystopian like we're going to warn you about the future <laughs> and and uh utopian you know it's all great i've always really loved to like yeah, I, go down two threads independently like i don't want to just look at what when someone you know calls up and says what what what'll be the uh, what are the big, what are the technological evolutions you see in medical, right? And you can start where medicine is today and move it forward, right? Uh, I always like to then pick a second vector like drones and move them forward into the future and then bring them together so side by side. And it's, you know, it's a common brainstorming technique for lateral thoughts, mm -hmm. you know, that, that allows you to, to you know, run some, you know, thinking but when you put apply it to futurism you can come up with some really fun results that connect to people but we tend to see a lot of this kind of futurism i think for the reason that people find it familiar and we see a lot less of the back casting or at least the start of back casting because no one wants to go way out on that island and just create something raw it tends to be just in science fiction or other spaces because it's such a risky thing to do mm -hmm. and, and and people will tell it apart if you don't make a picture that's so real when you do that um, and people can't see a bridge to it, it's just fake. It's not important. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and it doesn't land very well with people. This is the problem with the yeah, movie it, and the truth, right? It, he chose this path of like, I'm just going to show you the future, right? But every little piece that was wrong, people would just attack and go, that's not the future. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so the risk kind of failed in some ways. People didn't believe it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, there are some general trajectories that that typically take place. You know, things are going to either stay the same, get better, get worse, or just, you know, come out of the blue. And I like that you mentioned the utopias and dystopias because that's <clears> – there is no utopia or dystopia. They're, they're like yin and yang. They right. come together. You cannot have a utopia without there being a dystopia, and you cannot have a dystopia without there being a utopia. The, the, they, they just – coexist and i think this is the nuance that people need to understand that when you envision this perfect world well what are the imperfections in that world that make it uh you know look at look at western society is in large part pretty utopian compared to the inequality that's happening in the rest of the world you know would would, would the rest of the world consider that a utopia probably not but um yeah, I like the idea of doing this. I, I like your your notion of of picking a trajectory for two separate things and then forcing them together. That's a super fun exercise. Yeah, that's that um, a great example. The ambulance drone is a great example. Another great example of that was the um, little thing we did with um, Amazon and Whole Foods on the acquisition. They kind of created their own two paths, and it was like, oh, these are two very different things. 
<laughs> let's follow one to the future, the other future, put them together and see what kind of crazy super society we have. <laughs> uh, I like it. Yeah. Um, uh, it's that's, that's good stuff. You hear the whippoorwill now? <laughs> I love the whippoorwill. I'm telling you, man. Well, it's so I, great. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, I'm down to 19% battery here. <laughs> <laughs> that's Jared signing off. <laughs> And and listen, this has been, this has been way over an hour of conversation. I don't, I I don't see my, the the possibility is that I will break it into two episodes. We did that with the foodies episode, Stefan, Um, something that was an hour and a half. We're just like, no, we can't allow that. This can do 45 minutes apart. Um, And I, I, I don't see why I wouldn't do that. I think this has been just such a fantastic conversation. I had a, I'd messaged to fan while you were talking like Frederick Poole, yeah. Poole, you know, and then, and, then I'm Googling, and then I'm Googling the quote and it's like, finally, I find like, okay, Frederick Poole. Oh. Poole okay. I'll have a, Oh yeah, there it is. <laughs> I, it's, it's on, Oh, it's in the group chat, but I, I you can, I can message you directly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I would. I would love. I'd love to keep talking to you guys about stuff and Stefan specifically. I'd love to love to chat with you about VR and AR because I've got so many thoughts on that, and I am just. I, I have a couple of yeah, headsets yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm I think day. not only should we turn this into two episodes, but I think we should probably think about doing a follow up at some point. What I would in like to propose yeah. in, the, in the future, let's do it in what the I, future. What I would like to propose, and, and this is this is the, I mean, we're, we'll consider this almost like a, hold on, let's do this first. Stefan. You. I, I need to thank uh, Dre and Jared for being on this episode. This has been one of the, one of the most interesting and engaging conversations I have been on the outside looking in on. Um, I just, I've, I've enjoyed every minute of it i wholeheartedly concur and i think um your idea of bringing these two people together was brilliant see i have my moments man it was really good (laughs) i i asked the fewest questions i've ever asked yeah in this entire in the year and a half we've been doing this podcast i i think i asked two questions you know, it's been an hour and a half of conversation. I just, I love it. I love this. And it's been so great. So individually, Dre, thank you so, so much. My pleasure. And Jared, thank you too. Absolutely. Thank, thank you. Gratitude. Love, love and intellect. Just, I, I, I love you guys. I, I love you guys a ton. And I, I, yeah, love and intellect, man, for real. This is, this is the, this is the coolest thing. Um, so, so let's get to that. just for a so, solid yeah. hour and a half. Kept yeah. the universe from collapsing. Yeah, we've been saying. <laughs> this episode of Can't Sell This was produced in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. All creative content is copyright Hugh Elliott and Stefan Grambart. Intro voice is Jeff Wright. Intro track is That's the Spirit from the 2007 album Leave for the Sun, You Have Nothing to Pull You Back Down by The Darned. Released January 1st, 2017. Find The Darned on Bandcamp. TheDarned.Bandcamp.com Questions or comments can be sent to admin at cantsellthispodcast.com. Any other information can be found at cantsellthispodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I swear.